If you closed your uh, Bible, um, you might want to open it again to 1 Kings chapter 19 and this lengthy passage of Scripture. Now, we've looked at this passage initially or intentionally under two headings. One, to look at it just as we would ordinarily do with an exposition of the text, walking our way through it with uh, the outline that uh, comes to mind as as, um, I've studied the text. And we did that, and then last week we looked at it a second time, as I indicated, and we looked at it from the perspective of Elijah's uh, state of mind, if, if you will. And we looked at the whole subject of what older writers called fainting fits or melancholy, or today we'd call it depression. And we looked at uh, that under two heads, two major headings. Uh, There were three, but we didn't finish, and that's this afternoon. But depression and its cause. And these are not excuses, but there are a number of causes, and we've looked at um, older writers and more modern writers that are balanced, uh, that see a physical component, mental component, and a spiritual component, not all in the same person, but uh, a careful diagnosis, as Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, that a careful diagnosis is absolutely necessary and um, essential. We looked at that first major point uh, with 11 sub-points, so I'm not going to repeat them because it then I wouldn't have time for the rest of the sermon today. But at any rate, it's, it's a complex uh, kind of, of issue. And older writers, uh, as well as more contemporary writers, uh, have uh, attempted to uh, portray or to maintain a, a, a balanced uh, view. Um, and uh, again, there are some who've gone off the rails and who think that it's always the result of, of some mental uh, malady and others who've gone off the rails by saying it's always spiritual and it's always have to do with unconfessed sin. And we looked at a number of texts and a number of places and, either, and even a number of older writers uh, who pled for a balance. William Perkins, for example, one of the early Puritans um, uh, who... Uh, wrote uh, considerably and preached considerably. Lloyd-Jones, even Spurgeon, uh, and others, and David Murray, uh, a contemporary theologian at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, at least he was uh, there. I think he's back in the pastorate now. So it's caused. Well, it can be caused by a number of things. And even though it may be caused by a number of things, some of them physical, Yet there's always, as I'll say in a few moments, always a spiritual component in the sense that we can always look at things and must always look at things from a biblical perspective and draw upon the resources that God himself gives us, even if it is necessary uh, to visit um, a medical uh, doctor. The cause uh, always has something uh, spiritual uh, about it. Secondly, we noticed depression and its, its cure. And we had a number of things to say here. 
again, a number of them. I think there were 11 of them uh, that we noted uh, with regard to the cure of depression, beginning with recognize its reality. It's not to be dismissed, not to be swept under the rug or to blame someone or to blame someone else. And if that uh, could be taken away, then we wouldn't be uh, depressed. We need to learn the cause. And then as we looked at the text itself, we saw how Elijah suffering from melancholy as he makes his way all the way through Israel and outside of Israel into uh, Mount Sinai, that he continues to do a number of things. He retains his interest in other people, and it's one of the problems with depression is we get so self-absorbed that we don't that we, we don't care about anybody else, but he takes care of his servant. He sees that he's well cared for. He leaves him uh, and, and then continues on his way. He puts him in a place of safety. He fulfills his responsibilities toward uh, someone in his life. He replenished his strength. That is, he, the angel fed him. The angel uh, nourished him, and he found a place for uh, rest. He restored his health. Uh, he realized through the words of the angel and of the Lord himself that this was too great for him. And he realized uh, his weakness. And so we had a number of things that we saw from the text, uh, concluding with the whole idea and notion that he relies on covenant and promise. He doesn't just run away from Jezebel, but he leaves for a place, which is the place where God met Moses and inaugurated the Mosaic Covenant and made sure that Moses and the people knew of God's promises. Now, come back to that in just a few moments. So there were a number of things there as well, and you can listen to that if you're uh, so inclined. What I want to do now this afternoon for the time that we have uh, remaining is to look thirdly at depression and its comfort. You know, there's a cure, uh, there's a cause or causes, there, there are parts of the, of, the, of the cure, but there are specific things that are said here in the text that become of real comfort to Elijah in his moment of need. Now I want to open the text or open this part of it by just saying a couple of things. First of all, notice the frailty of the prophet. Now he's a prophet. And so you would expect him to be strong and you would expect him to, uh, to possess all of these uh, these resources that the average person just doesn't have at all. But that's not the case. Remember, Elijah was a man just like any other man. Elijah was a human being. He was made up of all of the component parts of ordinary, normal humanity. And he was marked by weakness. Now, I want to be careful. Weakness and sinfulness are not, the, are not exactly the same thing. And so he's marked by weakness, 
And while he does see that nothing has changed, and I think that's the value behind that verb in the first couple of verses, that he saw, and what did he see? He saw nothing had changed, and it dispirited him. His problem in particular was spiritual. It became physical as well as he grew tired, and the angel gave him food, and he was allowed to rest. But notice, first of all, the frailty even of a prophet. And if he could be frail and weak, so can we. Which then leads me to the second thing, which is related, and that is, notice, the melancholy of the prophet. He's not above, not beyond melancholy, again, or what older writers call fainting fits. It happens to the best. It happens to the best of men and women. And that's the subject matter that is before us. And again, what discourages us him is that nothing has changed. The victory on Carmel, the destruction of the altar, the destruction of the prophets, his getaway from Jezebel, again, at least in part, is marked by commitment, not carnality. And he flees to the sanctuary of God. He flees to the place where the law was given. And the distance is more than just a travelogue. You'll notice distant, or places are mentioned there. From Samaria to Beersheba was approximately 100 to 130 miles. Remember, he walked. And then from Beersheba to Horeb, or Mount Sinai, was another 200 miles. No wonder he was exhausted. And no wonder he was told, this is too great for you. Get some rest. And uh, eat a couple of meals to strengthen yourself. Now, it's interesting uh, and I just mentioned this in passing one other time, but let me, let me mention it again and perhaps focus in on, uh, on it a little bit more. That when he comes to Mount Sinai, a number of things take place. God speaks to him. Prior to that, we're told that um, the journey took him 40 days and 40 nights. That ought to, to say something to us. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Um, Israel was in rebellion against God for, what, 40 years. So there's, these numbers mean something. And so immediately you would expect, and I think it's embedded in the text, that, that Elijah reflects upon the life and the ministry of Moses Moses didn't have an easy time of it either. And to be sure, Moses' ministry is marked by great victory through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is destroyed, but almost as soon as they're on the other side, the people start complaining. There's no water, there's no food. And they complain a second time, there's, there's no water to drink. And at the same time, however, Elijah recognizes that this is a special place. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, it's referred to as God's mountain. 
Now, in a sense, every mountain is God's mountain, right? I mean, God made everything, and he sustains everything. And I suppose those of us who've lived here for a long time and grew up, we can look at Mount Rainier and say, well, if there's any mountain that's God's mountain, it's got to be Mount Rainier. Look how, look how ginormous, I don't think that's a word, but anyway, it, it really is. But Mount Sinai is referred to in Exodus chapter 3 as God's mountain. Moses was on the mountain with God 40 days and 40 nights. There the Mosaic covenant was inaugurated. And yet when he comes down from the mountain, what does he find? He finds the people engaged in idolatry. Nothing really has changed, has it? They're engaged in idolatry. In fact, later in Exodus, God says to Moses, look, I'm done with you now. You've got the Ten Commandments. You've got to go down because the people are running amok. They're, they're, they're chasing after idols. When Moses comes down, he finds a similar situation. And you may want to read Exodus 24, 34, Deuteronomy 9, to see what it was that Moses actually found when he came down from the mountain. And yet Moses is marked by resolve. And in fact, it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 4, And verse 2, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, how long? 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus is, if you will, a second Moses, but one empowered to do far more than Moses ever could do. And so as we've said previously, this is not just Elijah running away in fear, but rather he's running to something. He has a plan. Despite his melancholy and the fainting fits, as the older writers would have said, he has a plan. He goes to where he goes, not just to get away from Jezebel. He wouldn't have had to go that far. But rather, there was a sense in which Elijah remains committed to the God of the covenant. Let me put it differently. We come to a passage like this and we look at Old Testament characters and we say to ourselves, by way of extension and example, we can learn a great deal about what not to do and what to do. But there's another way to look at a text like this. And here's the other way. As we'll see in just a moment, this text says far more about God than it does about Elijah. I want you to hear that. This passage has far more to do with what God has done, was doing, and is going to do in the future even by anointing another prophet, Elisha. Here's the comfort of the prophet. Here is how we receive 
real comfort, not by looking at ourselves, but rather at looking at the God who made us and who sustains us and who redeems us and who provides and who provides comfort for us even in the midst of a fainting fit, even in the midst of melancholy. And so I want us to notice the role of God now in the comfort, uh, in, in, the role of God in the comfort uh, or in bringing comfort to the prophet. And there are several things that can be noted from the text. First of all, notice the sovereignty of God. We need to realize that when we suffer, whatever it is that we suffer, that God is not absent. And certainly God is not absent here, and we'll see more of that in just a moment or two. But we need to see that God is um, very present. And we, we might even say that God is present in the orchestrating of of all of these events, certainly in working in Elijah's life to bring him to the place where he is at the end of this chapter. And the last four or five verses of this chapter are really moving and and exciting and we'll get there, Lord willing, next week. But the sovereignty of God, the intervention of God, the plan and the purpose of God, God remains God in all of the circumstances of life. And he was there when Elijah uh, had his victory on Mount Carmel, when the prophets of Baal were destroyed, He was there even when Elijah saw that nothing had changed. The people reverted to their idolatry. And yet, God remains at the center for Elijah in that he goes to Mount Sinai. Why would he go there if he didn't have some hope, some resolve? to remain true to the God of heaven and earth. Then the second thing we need to see from the text is not only the sovereignty of God, that God is involved and remains involved. He's not an absentee landlord, but rather he's very much involved. But secondly, the sufficiency of scripture. Not only the role of God and the influence of God and the intervention of God and God even bringing us into the various circumstances in which we find ourselves, but the sufficiency of scripture. Remember that when Elijah um, uh, is communicating with God and he, and he comes to Sinai and uh, there's, God speaks to him and uh, and, and there's an earthquake, and there's a great wind, and so forth, but God is not in the earthquake, and God is not in the wind. He's in the still, small voice. And that's where Elijah finds some comfort. 
The Anglican Puritan Joseph Hall said, there is not always the greatest efficacy where there is the greatest noise. And we live in a world of noise. And we live in a world of evangelical noise. But God isn't necessarily there. He's with Elijah. And he's speaking to them barely above a whisper. Meaning, Elijah has to listen carefully to what's being said to him. Someone has said, the soft voice of God speaking to the conscience, illuminating the mind, and stirring resolve in individual and nation may follow and is preferable to the loud roaring and thunder of cosmic events. The sufficiency of scripture, God speaks, Elijah listens, and Elijah is comforted. In fact, God speaks not just in the still small voice, but later in giving instructions uh, to him about the future, and I'll come back to that uh, now momentarily. So we have the sovereignty of God, the sufficiency of scripture, And thirdly, the sympathy of God. When we experience melancholy and fainting fits, we ought not to draw the conclusion that God is mad at us, that God is angry with us, and that God is casting us off in some way. Again, this text is much more about God and the sympathy of God for his servant, for this prophet. Now notice a number of things that God does in this larger text. First of all, notice God's provision. Who sends angels? God does. And so Elijah comes to a particular place and he's exhausted and he finds this this particular tree. It's actually called a broom tree and it's very large, about nine feet tall and it has large leaves, and he falls asleep. It's a nice, cool place uh, to sleep. And then an angel comes and feeds him. And the language that's used there, as I mentioned earlier, it's the same language. The the, the cruise of oil is now the cruise of water. Um, And uh, the bread, um, it's, it's the very same word that is used in a previous chapter. And he comes to him twice because coming once is not enough to sustain him for the journey. This is too great for you. This is God through the angel speaking to the prophet. This is too great for you. Yes, I know it's too great. And the things that you and I face, yes, it's too great for us. And yet God provides in a way, sustains us in a way. Here's the providence of God. So there's God's provision. Secondly, notice God's initiation or God's conversation. God initiates the conversation. God speaks to Elijah. Elijah doesn't recognize God is there and this is, oh, by the way, God, can you help me? Although that's not a bad prayer. But that's not how this takes place, is that God takes the initiation. He met Elijah 
And he opened the conversation with Elijah, both in verse 9 and again in verse 13. And then thirdly, notice God's attention. God not only speaks to him, but God listens to him and responds to him. And of course, don't the scriptures do that? God speaks to us through his word. He's giving us his undivided attention in his word. And that's what he does with Elijah. God opens the conversation. God gives him his complete attention. And then fourthly, there's God's instruction, both in verses 11 and 12, and later in verses 15 through 15 and 16. And we'll come back to verses 15 and 16 because they're extremely important in terms of the instruction that God gives to him. And then we have fifthly, God's certification, God's covenant, his covenantal promise. Again, as he speaks of the destruction of God's enemies and the um, creation of another minister. And then fifthly, or sixthly, and finally, notice God's redemption. Elijah says, I'm the only one left. Meaning, probably, I'm the only speaking prophet, maybe in what he had in mind. Although, remember, there are a hundred of them in a cave hiding. He mentions that earlier. But God reassures him. Now, look, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him, that is, to kiss his idol. God's covenant promise is being fulfilled. God does not abandon his promise. He's not abandoned what he had told Moses, but he's actually actively fulfilling it. Elijah can't see that, but that doesn't mean it's not taking place. And I hope that you are, um, and that we are together encouraged when we read um, or when we come to prayer meeting on Sunday mornings after the morning worship and and we read reports and we read of churches being planted and we read of, 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 of children being saved in, in Myanmar and, and in Cuba, uh, churches being planted. And we may see here in, in, in the Seattle area such a day of small things, but that doesn't mean that we can be like Elijah and say, I'm the only one left. That's not true. It may seem like that, but it's just not true. And so there's the sympathy of God and the supply of God, fourthly. Not only individual or provision for Elijah individually, but in verses 15 and 16, Jehovah said unto him, verse 15, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, that is, retrace your steps. And when thou comest, thou shalt anoint 
Haziel to be king over Syria, Jehu the son of Nimshi, king over Israel, Elisha uh, to be a prophet in his place ultimately. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet will I leave me seven thousand who have not bowed the knee. Again, notice the provision of God. The provision of God is the same kind of provision for us. It was federal, that is covenantal, it was covenant promise. It was verbal. God speaks again, not just previously. Notice that the provision of God for his people was also political. You know, Haziel and Jehu were kings. And so we think of perhaps of God just having this sort of narrow influence in the church. But the text is telling us that God's influence is far more pervasive than that. He makes covenant promises to his people. He speaks with words. His influence is political. Kings are anointed. It was ministerial, another prophet. Ministry would not die with Elijah. I've lived long enough to see some very favored ministers die and pass into the presence of the Lord. I can think of two or three who are 10 years older than I am probably, and they're now with the Lord. But the ministry didn't die with them. And we think, well, so-and-so's gone. Woe is us. What's going to happen to the church? But the ministry doesn't die. Elisha is appointed to replace Elijah. And so the provision of God for was federal or covenantal, verbal, political, ministerial, and also ecclesiastical. 7,000 have not bowed the knee. Elijah, you're not alone. And you'll have a partner that you need to train, and we'll see that next week, and you need to help, and you need to encourage, and you need to bring along But the ministry isn't going to die and the word of God isn't going to die and the proclamation of that word isn't going to die because you eventually will be taken. Elisha will remain. And on top of that, there are 7,000. And so you have the sovereignty of God. You have the uh, sufficiency of scripture sympathy of God, the supply of God. And here is the strategy for God's people. God uses all kinds of means to provide for his elect people. Whatever opposition is eternal, there is something to meet it. 
Whatever opposition is external, there is something to meet it. And wherever the opposition is spiritual, there's a way to meet that as well. Dale Ralph Davis says this. Now remember, early on we talked about the different ways that people have looked at Elijah and some are ready to condemn him and say that he sinned by leaving, um, uh, by leaving Samaria the way that he did. We've taken another uh, approach, I think a better approach. Dale Ralph Davis says, this kindness, of course, the kindness of God in speaking to him and in providing for him and providing for the future This kindness, of course, is vintage Jehovah. And I must confess that in my despair, I would rather fall into the hands of Elijah's God than into the clutches of his interpreters. I thought that was pretty good. I'd rather fall into the hands of Elijah's God than into the clutches of his interpreters. The map, Davis says, suggests a plan rather than a panic running away. And Pastor Tom Lyon, our good friend, said, this was no flight from Jezebel. Something was troubling him. And Spurgeon wrote, it must have been a great comfort to Elijah to have some more work to do. Go back to Damascus. Go back. It must have been a great comfort to Elijah to have some more work to do. It often takes the mind off very pressing sorrow if one is sent on some new employment. And another quotation from Spurgeon. God heard the prayer that Elijah had prayed against Israel, for it was really a prayer against the people who had forsaken the Lord their God. There are times when men who are most tender of heart feel as if they must take God's side against sinners. But the Lord also comforted Elijah with good news. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed Just a few thoughts by way of conclusion. First of all, almost leaps off the page with the way we've um, expounded this text. The greatest men and women of faith may at times be subject to fainting fits. The best, most faithful Christian men and women may be subject to melancholy. Remember that James says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Depression is real, it's rational. Depression is insufferable, depression is problematical, And depression is spiritual. Despite the cause, there's a spiritual way to look at it wherever we are and whoever we are. Secondly, 
Weakness and wickedness are different things. We're marked by weakness and we're marked constitutionally by wickedness as well, but they're not the same thing. And care is needed to determine a person's condition when it comes to our attention that either they or we are suffering from melancholy. We need to avoid dogmatism and seek humility and seek to really listen and then give sound advice. Thirdly, notice God's patience. Elijah was fed for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was tempted 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 years, again, the number 40, God was angry with his people in the wilderness, but he did not abandon them. Notice the patience of God. Doesn't mean we ought to try his patience, but indeed, our God is a patient God. Fourthly, biblical faith is content with God's word. He heard the voice of God, the still small voice. God spoke to him again. God gave him something to do and God gave him hope. There's promise. Why are you here, Moses or Elijah? Well, I'm here at Moses' place because I'm jealous for the people of God. Why are you here? It's not a rebuke, it's an invitation. Why are you here? Tell me why this is so important to you. Elijah's crying out for the apostasy of Israel. He's not crying out for his failed ministry, but for the plight of the land. He had redemption on his mind. And it helps us to have redemption on our minds as well. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Elijah has not been God's last broken servant. There are cases also in these new covenant days. It is hardly a state to be desired, and yet surely 1 Kings 19 teaches that you needn't fear being a broken servant when you have such a kind and adequate God. Brothers and sisters, I can't think of a better way to end this passage than by saying, God treated Elijah tenderly. That's a key piece to this. God treated Elijah tenderly. And so must we. As we deal with people who suffer from melancholy and fainting fits. When we're troubled, there's only one place to go. 
And that's to the Lord himself, who will treat us as tenderly as he treated his servant. What a comfort that is. What an encouragement that is. What a blessing that is. Father in heaven, we do commend ourselves to you and, that, and ask that you might be with us in our moments of melancholy, that you will help us as we reread this text and see how you dealt with your servant. And then as we are called upon to deal with needy brethren, here and there and other places, may we, may we be good diagnosticians to diagnose what is truly going on in order to be of greatest possible help to those whom you love and whom we are called upon to love as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.